The Gospel of John, chapter 4, for the reading of Scripture. We'll begin reading at verse 30, or rather 43 through 54. That will be our passage for this morning. Uh, We're moving our way through John's Gospel on Sunday mornings, and this morning, this is where we find ourselves. Beginning at verse 43. Now, after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he now or was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them at the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So the reading of God's word. Let us pray again together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you've given to us your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your written word, the Holy Scriptures, which are living and active as well. We pray that you would speak to us now through the preaching of your word, convict us, comfort us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to follow him as you have commanded. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. On the day of judgment, and even sooner, uh, there will be some, if not many, who will find out that not all faith is saving faith. You know, we're told that you've got to have faith today. And you've got to have faith in something or someone. Recently, I was talking with a medical professional, and uh, we were talking about my father-in-law's death. And I was trying to go, you know, to that place where you can talk about the gospel. And I was saying, he's a Christian. We're Christians. We have that hope. And the conversation sort of got really shallow after that. And uh, it was told to me that, yeah, that you, you just got to believe in that, right? That it's comforting to you. And I was, I was like, well, it is, but it's not comforting to everyone. It shouldn't be if you're not a Christian. Some people have a nominal faith and in, in they're Christian in name only. They say they're Christian. They couldn't tell you what it means to be a Christian. And then there are those who have a temporary faith. Our Lord Jesus talked about this in the uh, parable of the sower. And he talks about the sower that threw out the seed and some of that seed fell on the stony ground and they looked like they had faith. The seed sprouted and came up. Uh, But when trials and tribulation came, Jesus tells us in Matthew 
13, that immediately that person stumbles. And so it was a temporary faith. You know, some 370 years ago, the Westminster divines, those pastors and theologians who assembled at Westminster in England and helped to come up with the confession of faith that we believe here, it's not the Bible, but it's a document of Christian teaching, they defined saving faith in this way. They said, by this faith, a Christian believes to be true. Whatever is revealed in the word for the authority of God speaking therein. And they continued with this. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. And this morning, what I need to highlight there is resting upon Jesus alone for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see a picture of true saving faith as illustrated by this nobleman that came into contact with Jesus Christ. Now, remember in John's account here that Jesus had already been in Cana. That's found in chapter 2. He was in Cana of Galilee. That's where, as John tells us in our text, that Jesus turned water into wine. And so as he came to them in Cana of Galilee, they, we are told, believed in Jesus. That's at the end of John uh, John chapter 2. But it says in John 2.24, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Remember, Jesus knows what is in man. And he knew that their belief was not true faith in him. So he didn't commit himself to them. And so in our text, he comes back to Cana, to those who, quote, believed in him. And so in line with John's purpose and the Holy Spirit's purpose of giving us this gospel, and that is that we we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and believing we might have life in his name, John 20 and verse 31, We need to understand the difference between an insufficient faith and true saving faith. And we have that contrast here in these verses, verse 46 through 54. And so simply, I want us to uh, see the setting that John provides for us, the contrast, and then uh, the message, what it is that is being conveyed to us here today. And so the Holy Spirit, again, it's through John the Apostle, sets up for us verses 46 and following, if you look there in your Bibles, with verses 43 through 45. And so we are told that Jesus heads to Galilee from Samaria. And again, this was on foot. If it wasn't on foot, it might have been on a donkey, a rough ride. But this is a side note, but in my studies I thought, Jesus and his disciples and all of these people in that day, they sure did walk a lot, didn't they? And here I am sitting in my, in my study so, so many hours during the week, you know, trying not to have a sedentary lifestyle. But that's a whole other thing. They must have been in pretty decent shape. But the wages of sin is death, so they still, they still die. But uh, anyway, Jesus goes all the way from Galilee to, or to Galilee from Samaria, probably 37 miles. And this is Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up as a young man. This is Uh, The highest region probably in Israel, reaching some 3,900 feet. And remember, the Sea of Galilee is there. That was uh, the source of their income, fishing. 
And at least two disciples come to Jesus who are fishermen. Do you know who they were? Simon, who's called Peter, and, and Andrew. But why did Jesus go here? That's the question. And uh, if you look there, verse 44, that's why the word for is there. Because for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus says this elsewhere, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. And uh, if this is true for the sinless Son of God, how much more is it true for you and me? We need to remember this as Christians when we open our mouths about the faith, about Christianity, specifically about our need for Jesus Christ, that when we are around those who know us the most, they probably will be the most difficult for us to reach. Why? Because they know our warts. They know us well. They know our faults. As it said, the old proverb, not in the Bible, but the old proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. And so we need to remember that, not be caught off guard. And, and Jesus here, I mean, he grew up. They saw him grow up. And uh, he was a carpenter. And, and really, you're a prophet of God? And so this is why Jesus goes there. Now, why would he go there? If he was going to be treated in that way. That's a question we ought to think about in this passage. And I've come to the conclusion with others that Jesus went here probably because he knew that he would not become very famous, very well liked. I mean, as we'll see, they received him. But it wasn't a true faith with which they received him. And so Jesus is flying under the radar. In other words, you know, when his popularity grows, I mean, when Jesus healed in the regions of Galilee and Judea and all of this, he nearly eradicated disease. When he became so popular, guess who comes to town? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Why? Because they want him gone. They want him dead. So Jesus, his time has not yet come. So he goes to Cana of Galilee. And so it says there in verse 45, I think it is, yeah, it says, the Galileans received him. In the original here, this word received can mean believe, but it can also simply mean welcome. This is not the word for trusting in the um, technical sense. That Greek word is uh, pistuo, and that's not the word used here. It is the word used, by the way, of the nobleman and his household. But they received him, as some translations put it, And uh, again, this takes us back to John chapter 2, where he turns water into the best wine. And the best alcoholic wine, by the way, but that's another sermon for another time. Don't don't be drunk with wine. That's what the Bible says. Don't cause a brother to stumble. But anyway, it says that in John 2, they, uh, having seen him, believed. And uh, in our text here, we are told why they received him. In verse 45, so when he came... To Galilee, the Galileans received him. Why? Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, at the Passover feast that was before this. For they also had gone to the feast. And so they received him because they knew he was a worker of miracles. I mean, if you saw someone heal the sick, eventually raise the dead and and give sight to the blind, all these things, would you not think that is a neat thing? Would you not be fascinated with that? How did he do that? Was it real? And perhaps you have an ailment you would like to be healed of as well. And so they become fascinated with him. That's why they receive him. 
And remember that at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 30, he says that Jesus, he, he committed so many miracles that it, it wouldn't be possible, possible to put them in a book and record them. And so this is the setting. This is the backdrop of the nobleman who will come next in our text. Jesus goes to Cana of Galilee. The Galileans receive him. That is, they welcome him. And he went there, I believe, as I put it, to fly under the radar. And so then we have this contrast, beginning of verse 46 and following. Again, the Galileans are the, the backdrop to the nobleman. Jesus goes to Cana of Galilee. And so there in verse 46, we're introduced to this nobleman. It says that so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And so uh, this nobleman, the word there means the official of a king. Probably he attended the king's court, uh, the royal court of Herod Antipas. He was the son, I think, of Herod the Great, and he was the governor of Galilee. Now, remember Herod Antipas, he was a wicked man. Remember, he divorced his wife so he could uh, marry his half-brother's wife and uh, his niece then became also his daughter. And uh, remember, his niece Herodias did a dance before him. I think it was on his birthday. And, and he was so enthralled with that, he asked her, he told her, you know, whatever you want, I will give it to you. And she said, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Because John the Baptist, the prophet of God, spoke the truth about Herod and his relationship, illicit relationship with his new wife. And uh, so guess what? He, he killed John the Baptist and put his head on a platter. This man was wicked. And so this nobleman was associated with this court, with this ruler, this governor of Galilee. And so here stands this nobleman. He comes and he stands before Jesus, who, by the way, at this time was a carpenter, as you know, no doubt. And uh, as he comes, he knows that Jesus is more than a carpenter. He had heard about, if not seen and experienced at the Passover, these miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he comes in desperation. We're told in the passage that his son was sick. We don't know how old his son was. He was at the point of death. What is it that drives this man to Jesus? A tragedy? A crisis in his life. And that's what it takes for many to come. In fact, some of you perhaps have had a tragic event in your life. It's caused you to step back, to ask questions. And eventually, by God's grace, you got the answers. The answer is Jesus. And so you go to Jesus. And that's what's happening here. He's being drawn. This is only by God's grace, by the way, that this man comes to Christ. We're going to learn in John 6, Jesus says, no man can come unto me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so I, I mentioned that because God is sovereign. God is providential. He's not only all powerful, able to raise the dead, through his power, he govern, governs all of his creatures, all their actions, even this man's son and his condition. Jesus is not only the Son of Mary, he's the eternally begotten Son of God. He's the God man, he's God in the flesh. So he knew what was going on with this man's 
life, his son. But anyway, this man comes to Jesus out of desperation. And uh, if you look at verse 49, well, let me back up. Yeah, I skipped over an important part, didn't I? So in verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come to this area, he went to him. And by the way, I think that was 16 miles. He had to travel as well without a car. Um, He came down to Jesus. Verse 48, then Jesus said to him, and Jesus speaks in the plural here, not just to him, but to everyone there. Unless you people, I just want to say that like R.C. Sproul did in that famous video that's online. But unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So Jesus takes the opportunity here to rebuke the sign-seeking Galileans. And it serves as a warning to this nobleman, too. So he comes to Jesus. Jesus utters this rebuke. Now, I think around this time, the nobleman does have faith. He has the faith of a child. And as William Hendrickson put it, he had faith, but he was still standing on the lowest rung of faith's ladder. By the way, what are we to make of all of this sign seeking? I mean, they knew that Jesus was this miracle worker. They were captivated by his miracles. And you might be thinking, well, Kevin, isn't that why God used signs and wonders? These things that cause amazement among mere men. Didn't he give us signs and wonders in the Bible at the time that he was giving revelation to attest that the ones who spoke on his behalf had been truly sent by him. They were like badges, you know, the cop flashes his badge. And and, in these days, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, they raise the dead, commit miracles. That's them flashing the badge saying, I hold this office from God himself. Well, that's true. That's true. That's the reason we see miracles in the Bible. Whether it's Moses, Jesus, or Paul, or whomever. Um, But there's a problem here. The problem with these Galileans is that they were fixated on signs. When they saw a sign, what did they want? Another sign. When they saw that sign, they wanted another sign. There was an irony here, and it is that their acceptance of Jesus really is a rejection of Jesus. They're accepting him because he does these great things, not because of who he says he is and what he has and will do. They don't recognize him as the son of God come in the flesh, the one who has come uh, anticipated by Old Testament believers, written about by the Old Testament, Isaiah and and all the Old Testament, that he he came to die for the sins of his people. And so the problem is they wanted more signs. They hadn't come to Jesus They hadn't come to saving faith in him. Just the simple trust at his word, as the old hymn put it. The application today, Paul, well, for these, Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. So then the application for today 
is would be those who are interested in Jesus. Perhaps they talk about Jesus. They're appreciated or they're appreciative of him. They are in, interested in his works. Maybe they come to places where Jesus may be found. They come to church, Bible studies. They watch documentaries. But they never come to Jesus himself. That's the issue. But this nobleman, as we see, took Jesus' words to heart. In verse 49, the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He he hears the word of Jesus and he begs Jesus to come. And by the way, the, the Greek tells us that he was doing this over and over and over again. Uh, he did not consider that Jesus could have healed him from a distance, nor did he consider that Jesus could have raised his son from the dead. Men point this out. I pointed out to you, but he still latched on to Christ, isn't he? Come, come, come to my house, heal my son. And so he receives in verse 50, really a test from Jesus himself. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. That's all Jesus says. Go your way. Your son lives. Jesus didn't do another miracle. He didn't flash a sign in the sky. He didn't transport his son to this place somehow. Say, look, here he is. He simply said, your son lives. And that's important for us to note in this text. The man believed the word, it says in verse 50, that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. This reminds me of James 2. Faith without works is dead. We're not justified by our works. We're justified by faith alone. But true faith is um, uh, manifested in obedience to God. Not a perfect obedience, but faith does work, as we say. This man heard the simple promise of God, and he acts upon it. That's faith. That is true faith. In fact, the word used here is uh, pistuo. The man believed the word. And so there's something missing. And that is another sign by Jesus. That is what is missing. And so there's this nice touch on the part of God's providence in verses 51 through 53. As the man is is going his, his way, we're told there in verse 50, that he went his way. Verse 51, as he was going down, down the elevation... Uh, His servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. The same words that Jesus spoke, right? Here's confirmation. And what a sigh of relief this guy must have breathed. Then, in verse 52, it says, he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And, And so... If you read commentaries or read literature about this passage, there's debate as to, well, are they talking about the Jewish timetable? They started the day at 6 a.m. Are they talking about the Roman timetable because it would be off and blah, 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 blah. What's the point? Look at the next verse. Verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your Son 
lives. And he himself, again the nobleman, believed, and his whole household. And then we're told, verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, did you notice in that section what is repeated three times? That phrase, your son lives. Jesus tells him, your son lives. And then these men, his servants, the nobleman's servants, they tell him, your son lives. And then we are told the father remembered, the nobleman remembered what Jesus had said. Your son lives. Who is it that healed this man's son? It's the Logos we are introduced to in the very first chapter of this gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking about the Logos who became flesh, Jesus, in Him was life. And the light, that light was the light of men. And of course, we were told at the beginning that uh, Jesus, the Word, was there. The Word was with God and the Word was what was was God, if I could say it correctly. But the point is, the same God who spoke the world into existence spoke resurrection life into this man's son. That's the power of the word and gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings life and the light to men. And so now this nobleman has the opportunity to testify of Jesus, who he is, and Jesus, his work to his servants. Let us not forget, we have that opportunity to give praise to God in some way nearly every day. And so the Galileans were unable to move from the signs to faith in Jesus, whereas this nobleman did. So what's the message for us today? simply have three points, three principles, points of application. There's more that can be drawn out from this text. But first of all, we see that the gospel here is going beyond Jerusalem. The gospel is expanding beyond Jerusalem. It's in Judea. It's in Cana. It's in Galilee. And as we've already seen, the gospel has been extended beyond the Jewish people uh, to the Samaritan woman. And here we see that all ranks in society have the availability of the gospel of Christ. It goes to various social groups. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul said this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And yet at the same time, God calls some who are wise and mighty and noble. We see that here with this nobleman, a noble man. Of the king's court. And God does that today. You look at uh, the history of the church and, and you will find that on occasion God saves certain dignitaries, civil rulers and magistrates, those in high places. Some of these I know are contested. Uh, but for instance, Constantine in Rome in the 300s, uh, Theodosius after him, God reportedly saved. And both of these men Um, refer to what we now call the Nicene Creed. We confess that, a Trinitarian Christian confessioner creed of the faith. 
And Constantine called to order that, uh, that very council that uh, penned the Nicene Creed. Theodosius said, this is the official faith of the Roman Empire. Of course, there were many after him. We can think of Cromwell in England. Some hate him, some love him. Some Christians love him. Some Christians do not like him so much. But he was a professing Christian. And you see the point. At times, God does this. And as we think about that, we need not to hold back the gospel from those in high places. You know, I was reading a book a while back, a long time ago, about the call to the Christian ministry. And I guess it pierced my heart because I was in seminary and I thought, you know, I, I want to go uh, to, don't take this the wrong way, kind of a backwoods, just church, reformed church that holds to the tenets of the gospel. I think I'd be comfortable in that. Well, in this book, he says, if you're called to serve in that place or in a very um, uh, sophisticated area where maybe there are engineers and doctors and so forth, then, then if God calls you to that, he will equip you to it. And the same is true for us as we think about to whom it is that the gospel goes. But second, we see here um, that God ordinarily deals with households. God is in the business of dealing with families. It's not always the case. In fact, Christ has said in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, or rather 12, in verse 52, Jesus says, five and one house will be divided. And so we need not to be surprised again when the Gospel comes to a house that is not uh, beforehand a Christian household, and that some believe and some don't. Jesus warned us of that. But as we see here, Um, In verse 53, this man himself believed and his whole household. And uh, you can just make a footnote. This goes back to the covenant of grace as we see it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 with Abraham. Genesis 17, God says the promise is to you, Abraham, and your descendants after you. That's why you get the sign. That's why they get the sign. In Acts chapter 2 and verse Uh, 39, Peter talks about the giving of the Spirit, the promise that was given in the Old Testament, the Spirit to come that did come. He says, the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off. So whether it's Abraham, Noah, uh, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, we see God dealing with households. So when you take all that into consideration, um, young people and older people, You need to remember and take what the Bible says, this balance here, that just because you're born into a Christian household does not mean you're automatically saved or a Christian or have saving faith. But at the same time, praise God, bless God that you were born into a Christian household to Christian parents. And we see how God deals with people in that way. Now, here's the fundamental principle in this passage. We have here this living example of true saving faith. The faith that saves against the backdrop of the faith that does not save. The faith that does not save is the one that comes near, that looks down, that is in awe of Jesus, but never commits one's soul and very being to Jesus Christ. But here is the nobleman who comes to Jesus out of desperation. He's driven to Christ and he clings to Christ. He rests upon Christ. Remember what we've said 
is the definition of true saving faith. Receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Remember the three elements of true saving faith. Knowledge, assent, and what? You've heard it before. What's the third? Knowledge, assent. Not leaving until I hear it. Trust. That's right. Trust. And so it's not the facts about the gospel that saves us. It's not assenting and saying, oh yeah, that happened. It's trusting in Jesus. Not because of His miracles, but trusting in Him at the base uh, promise that He has given us, the bare promise that He has in the gospel. That is fundamental to this passage. Remember the, the, the 16th chapter of Luke. There's a rich man. He neglects the poor among him. Uh, the poor eat uh, at, at the crumbs of his table, as it were, and uh, they die. One goes to Hades. The other goes to Abraham's bosom. One goes to heaven. One goes to hell. Well, the rich man, not because he's rich necessarily, ends up in hell. There is Lazarus, the poor who have faith. He's in Abraham's bosom. Between the two, there's this great chasm, we are told, that so no one can cross. And there's that man, that rich man. He's, he's telling Abraham, he's like, Abraham, please just give me a little bit of water. I'm in torment because of this fire. Just put it on my tongue. Nope. He says, well, I have five brothers. Go, go tell them. And, uh, and, and Abraham says, no, there's this great chasm. Can't do that. And uh, then the man alludes to the fact, evidently, that if, if I were to be able just to go and tell them, they would believe because they know I'm, I'm dead and, and, and I, I come from the place of the dead. If I tell them, they will believe. Then we're told this by Jesus. Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, what is that? The word of God. The Bible. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That passage, and I think the one before us, teaches us what is called the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word alone is powerful and able to save sinners. That is what is needed. Romans 10, 13 says, faith comes by seeing signs. No, that's not right. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. As Paul says, we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. Doubting Thomas, who I believe became a Christian, learned this lesson. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appears to him and he says, look, Thomas, he says, put your hands here. Feel this one. Feel this one. Or this one. And Jesus' point is, I am he who was dead and I am alive forevermore. And so Thomas says, my, my Lord and my God. Jesus is God. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm not God. No, he, he accepts that worship. But Jesus then said this to Thomas. In John 20, verse 29. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That is the point before us in John chapter 4. So I'll ask you, even though you haven't seen Jesus Christ, even though you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've perhaps read about Him, do you trust in Him? Not because of some external thing, but do you trust the simple and bare promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that if you believe in Him, if you trust in him, in him, you will be saved. 
Do you take him at his word? Do you believe who he says he is? And what he has promised. This, my friend, is the essence of true saving faith. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, without Christ we are nothing. Without your power we are deaf. Without your power we are blind. Without your power we have hearts of stone. But through your spoken power and the power of your spirit, we have new ears, new eyes, a new heart to hear, see, and receive the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that you have shown the light of the gospel into our hearts. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would exhibit a lively and ever growing faith in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.